Let's pray. Jesus, it is so incumbent upon us to be sure we're faithful to your word. It's so easy to to say things that are on our heart that are not on your heart. And we just ask that you would guard us from that. And that the things that come out of my mouth and our mouths would be those things which are precious and honorable and and just lift you up, Lord, that honor you. So we just ask that for that now, that Jesus would just be pleased with what we say. And we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to actually get to briefly the third church in Revelation 2 and 3. But that's not immediate. I wanted to talk about the marks of a true church initially. And first of all, one of the marks of a true church is faithful preaching of the Word of God. And that means that the church teaches the Christian gospel according to the Scripture. And any group that denies the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the atonement, his bearing of our sins, or justification by faith alone, and to refresh your memory, justification is God's act of pardoning sinners and accepting them as righteous for Christ's sake. So any group that denies these doctrines are not, according to Jesus' words in 1 John 2.19, they are not of us. So it's incumbent upon us to, to be sure that we understand what these things mean according to Scripture. And just briefly, when you're talking about Scripture, you know well as I do that Scripture is the Word of God. Exodus 32.16 says, The tablets were the mark of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And 2 Timothy 3.15, a scripture that we know well, says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we're not sure what scripture is, now we know. When it talks about the Trinity, obviously we also know that the word Trinity is not found in scripture. But the concept is over and over and over again. And one of the marks of so many cults is they deny the Trinity. In Jesus' own baptism, we see the Father who acknowledges the Son and the Spirit showed the presence of the Son's life and ministry. And Jesus teaches baptism 
in the name, and when he uses the word name, it's the word is singular. In the name, one name of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the one singular name is the three members of the Trinity. The prayer for grace and peace is from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. In Revelation 1, 4, and 5. The Trinitarian blessing is found in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we also find it in John 5 and in 13, excuse me, John 13 through 15. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Holy Spirit's called God in the book of Acts. And then the deity of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6 says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. John 1, 1, obviously everybody knows that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, He is self-existent, eternal, immutable, omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent excuse me, omnipresent, and omniscient. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The deity of Christ, fundamental. And if you get away from these teachings, then... You don't have the marks of the true church. So, preaching the word of God faithfully is one of the essential marks of the church. Secondly, it's the right use of the sacraments. That means that baptism and the, Holy, and the Lord's Supper are used and explained as setting forth the gospel of Christ. They can't be turned into superstitions that take away from the sufficiency of faith in Christ. If they do, they're not being used in a manner according to Scripture. The Lord's Supper confirms for the faithful their membership in the church and their community with each other in Christ. And it's important to know the nature of the church when you're reading these seven letters to the churches written in the book of Revelation. It was important then and it's important important today when you've got so many opposing groups saying different things, so many of them claiming to be faithful to Scripture. But you can't deny the deity of Christ and be part of His church. Jesus Himself is the head of the church. He said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, my church. When Christ said to Peter, upon this 
rock, I will build my church. He wasn't talking about Peter. Not Peter himself. But he was talking about Jesus being the foundation. The church was to be built not upon Peter, what he said, but upon his confession, namely the deity of Christ, of Christ himself. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately Jesus says, upon this rock, upon all you've said about me, I will build my church. And those who deny the essential truth of the deity of Christ, again, cannot be part of the church. The word church in the New Testament is never used about a building or a place of assembly. It means an organized body, a congregation, or a society of regenerated people. They're built together, just as Jesus said, as living stones. They're a religious assembly. They're selected and they're called out by the world, by the doctrines of the gospel. Reverend Thomas Arnold says, The true and grand idea of a church is a society for the purpose of making men like Christ, earth like heaven, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Christ. That's a bold assertion. And it it's incumbent on us to believe that and to live like that. Could you repeat that quote one more time? He said, The truth and grand idea of a church is a society for the purpose of making men like Christ, earth like heaven, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Christ. One distinction that needs to be made is that the church has both been called both an organization and an organism. And what these words truly mean has been pretty much neglected, I think. And that's the distinction between the true church and the professing church, between the called out and the visible. between the body and the building, or between the church organized and the church organic. An organism has got life. An organization doesn't have one. So an organization can be removed and replaced by new parts without destroying the integrity of the building. You take a door and a window and replace it, but the place still remains intact in respect to the usage that it was designed for. But you can't do this with an organism, excuse me, an organism. You can't remove an eye or an ear or an arm without destroying the integrity of the whole body and causing the mutilation. You can attach a false arm or a false ear, but that doesn't make the body whole again. The church of God is an organism for what's called the body of Christ. Can a Christian fall away and be lost? No, because if he could, then the body of Christ would be forever mutilated and therefore never perfect. Can't be done. One question to men and women ought to be, do you belong to Christ? 
not what church <coughs> you go to. That's the essential thing. You can belong to Christ even in the midst of a corrupt church. So, do you belong to Christ? Is a word that ought to ring in our hearts and be on our lips to talk to other people. It needs to be a system that's an organism and not an organization. And the pathway, as we know, to the true church is narrow. And men and women have to pass through the gate one by one. The condition for membership is the same for all, and that condition is found in the Lord's words to Nicodemus. You must be born again. That's the condition. Nothing else matters. Not race, not creed, not sex or anything else. It's, you have to be born again. In the first chapter of Revelation, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard a voice telling him to write in a book whatever you see and send it to the seven churches. And in turning to see the voice, this spoke to him. He saw seven golden lampstands in the middle, and in the middle of them he saw one who could only be the Lord based on his description. And John is told that the seven lamps, the lampstands, are the seven churches. And the first church he's told to write to is the church in Ephesus. And though it's commended for many, many things, and if you stop halfway through, you would think this is the greatest church there ever was. It faces great judgment unless it repents from abandoning its first love. And what's the judgment? It's the removal of the lampstand. If the lampstand is removed, that means Jesus has departed. It'll no longer be his church. Without love, the congregation ceases to be a church. Nothing substitutes for love, and Ephesus is the loveless church. The call is to remember from where you have fallen, repent, and return to the deeds you did at first. The second church was in Smyrna, and the Lord tells them what they are about to suffer. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. It seems like tribulation and poverty in so many instances go hand in hand because they're often linked together. And in Smyrna, there was a considerable colony of Jews and they were very hostile to the Christians, even to the point that they joined together with the Gentile portion in persecuting the church. Their poverty the church's poverty, was probably not only due to their normal economic conditions, but to the confiscation of their property and the looting by hostile mobs. The letter to the Hebrews 
talks about this plundering of property. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, <coughs> beginning in verse 32, <coughs> it says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Smyrna is the persecuted church. The third letter is written to the church in Pergamum. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, reads as such. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. <clears throat> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. <clears throat> Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam, who taught, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the word of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamon had the oldest temple in Asia Minor dedicated to emperor worship. And observance of this worship became a test of loyalty to Rome. And refusal to take part and the worship was considered high treason, and yet um, this wasn't the only temple. So you had the temple for worship of Caesar, and then there was a temple dedicated to Zeus, and another to Athena. And Pergamum was also the center 
of worship of Asclepius. Asclepius was the serpent god, like you see on a medical staff, because it was famous for a place of healing and for his college of medical priests. So all these pagan religions, along with emperor worship, made for an especially difficult environment for a Christian church to operate. The church in Pergamon is the only one of the seven that has a listed martyr, Antipas, who was killed. Was killed among you, my faithful servant. And the word servant is witness or martyr. Martyr means witness. While the church held fast to Christ's name and didn't deny his faith, not all the members were entirely faithful. Some held to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel. This refers to the pagan priest Balaam that was hired by Balak to curse Israel. And Balak was the king of Moab, and he had seen the countries all around him get devastated by this huge group of a million and a half or however many there were Israelites on the way to the promised land. And all this takes place very shortly before they actually go into the promised land. Blessings and curses were considered irrevocable at this particular time. You can see it when... uh, Jacob and Esau get blessed by their father Isaac and he blesses Jacob who thinks he's Esau and then has a hard time blessing Esau with what Esau deserves as the firstborn. But anyway, they were considered irrevocable. So Balak reasoned that if he could hire a prophet to curse the Israelites in the name of their own God, the Lord, he could easily defeat them in battle and drive them away from his borders. So he sends envoys to Balak, along with gifts and things, to try to get Balaam to come to him and to curse Israel. And of course it doesn't work the first time, so Balak tries the second time. Each time, Balaam asked the Lord, can I do this? What would you have me to do? <coughs> and the Lord says, I, I'll, I bless Israel. And so Balaam knows that he's, he's not allowed to do it. But the second time, he asked God the same question after being rebuked the first time or saying, I can only bless Israel. But he wants to try again because money is his purpose, his object. And so this is sort of a, uh, to me, a a warning sign that if God says no the first time on something like this, you don't ask him the second time. Because the second time the Lord said, all right, go, but only say what I tell you to say. But then the Lord, it says the Lord was going to kill him. And this is when the donkey comes in that Balaam's riding on, on his way to see Balak. The donkey sees the angel blocking the path with a sword. 
Balaam, of course, doesn't see him. He's blind to it. And he beats the donkey, and then the donkey lays down, and the pathway is so narrow that he can't go around it. And then the angel opens his eyes, and he says, if the donkey, and the donkey speaks to him and says, why have you been beating me? Haven't I been faithful to you all these years? And then the angel says, your donkey is wiser than you because I was going to kill you if you had come another step closer. So even though the Lord says, go, it sounds like, okay, you asked for it. I told you once. but So we need to be careful about some of the things we ask the Lord sometimes, perhaps. Anyway, that's my interpretation. So. so then of the Balak finally departs, or Balaam finally departs, because Balak is so frustrated that he's never able to curse Israel. But he does something else that almost accomplishes his purpose. He tells Balak how to get the Lord to turn away from his people. And he tells them, if you will send people in, in other words, the women of Moab, to have relations with the men of Israel and teach them to bow before our gods, the Lord will turn away from them and punish them. And it almost worked because that's exactly what happened and the Lord sent a plague, and it took the lives of 24,000 people. And there's a lot more you can read about the whole story without all the parts that I left out in Numbers 21 through 24. So some people in the church in Pergamum were involved in sexual immorality and idolatry. At least it was tolerated and even advocated by some in the church. The church in Ephesus, on the other hand, had no toleration for the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And evidently, these deeds of the Nicolaitans followed pretty much in line with the same sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. So Ephesus turned away from that and wouldn't tolerate it, but not so the church in Pergamon. Though the whole church is called upon to repent, it's only the offenders of these heresies against whom Jesus threatens to fight with the sword of my mouth. Those who overcome, who abstain from the enticement of fornication and idolatrous feasts, will receive some of the hidden manna. They will feast with Jesus in the kingdom to come, and they'll be given a white stone with their name written on it. There are many theories about the meaning of, of the white stone. In the ancient world, for one thing, a white stone was used in trials, a white stone indicating not guilty, a black stone guilty. Another view is that a white stone with a name on it was used as a ticket to special events or festivals. So maybe this meant admission to the Messianic feast at the end of time. 
At any rate, Pergamon is the corrupt church. The letters to the churches are meant for us to study, for instruction, and warnings. They show us the right way to live and the pitfalls to avoid. And they show us the way to be faithful to the Lord. And there are four more to go. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we want to learn from what you teach us. We don't want to go through the same pitfalls time after time. So I just pray, Lord, that uh, we would be teachable. We would be alert and open to your word and faithful to it, to to the glory of your name. Amen.